Tonight, we're going to begin a new series. Um, we're going to be talking about some other disciplines that are in Scripture that maybe we tend to overlook. We, we tend to think about them, maybe, but it's something that we put them into practice. And they, too, help us grow in our love for God. Uh, they help create space and time for us to uh, cultivate love for God, for the Holy Spirit really to do His work in revealing to us who God is and and what he wants for us. And uh, specifically, these disciplines are about revealing Christ and who he is and what he is for us, that he's really, that he's everything for us. And our identity is truly in him. So I call these disciplines, and everyone might have a different idea of what a discipline is. Some of us might be like, yeah, discipline, I got this. Uh, do more, do it better, be more awesome. And you're like, yeah, let's do this. Others of you are like, oh man, are you telling me there's one more thing I have to add to my list of things to do? It's just going to be another burden? We tend to have these two different types of reactions I find, or at least I find in myself. I won't necessarily speak for everyone here, but I'll point the finger at myself on this one. Because I tend to idolize my ability to be self-sufficient, or I tend to become paralyzed by my own inadequacy. I idolize my ability to be self-sufficient or I become paralyzed by my own inadequacy. And there's a trap there because our natural inclination is to actually push the activity of God off into the margins instead of actually placing it front and center. We saw this in Roger Jackson's prayer. He said, this is not about necessarily what the doctors can do, although they're involved. This is not about what modern science is going to do, but they're involved. But really, God, what are you going to do? God, where is your part in this? And God was brought through prayer, front and center. So God is here tonight, and he wants us to meet with him. He isn't going to give us something that we have to go out and then conquer or be crushed by. He wants, us, he wants to invite us to come to him and receive from him what we really need. And what we really need is actually freedom. And what we really need is actually life. And I wonder if tonight, if we all believe that, that that's what God wants to give us. That he says, I've got this. I've got you. Come to me. Come be with me. Come see all the great things I've done for you with all the great things that I long to give you. Be still. Let me show you that I love you. Psalm 147 says this, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him and who put their hope in his unfailing love. And that's what this series is going to be about. What pleases God is not our strength or our competence. What pleases him is for us to find our greatest pleasure in Jesus, to enjoy him, to savor him. He is most pleased when we place our hope in him and in his unfailing love. I know I want to please him. I know many of you want to please him as well. We're going to take a look at that in the words tonight. But first, let's pray. Please pray with me. Oh God, we long for your presence. Would you come and be here with us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts, Lord? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you reveal yourself through your word and through your Holy Spirit, Lord? We long to meet with you. Come be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a problem. I have a problem. 
I have a love-hate relationship with my work. And don't get me wrong, my job is great. It's very difficult, but it helps provide, it helps me provide for my family. And, and, but I struggle to walk away from it. It's very demanding. I, 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 in my role, literally built into the role, I have to respond to critical issues, escalation, the stuff that has to be dealt with all day long. People issues, process issues, system issues, and sometimes all night long too. I have to respond. And so I'm thinking about this job constantly, I'm constantly shifting gears in and out of it. I'm thinking about in the bathroom, I'm thinking about in the shower, I'm thinking about at the dinner table, which my wife, my wife loves. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes at two or three in the morning, and I realize that I'm having entire conversations with people. I'm, I'm acting out what I'm going to do in this interaction the next day. In the middle of the night, I wake up, my mind and my heart are racing. So many of us, maybe you have something like this in your life. Uh, maybe it's not work, but whatever it is, it makes rest hard. We get anxious about things like politics school exams and grades. Maybe it's a special relationship or one that's going sour. Keeping our kids behaving, keeping our kids alive. Keeping our house clean, our finances in order, maintaining our health, dealing with major illness, dealing with a death of a loved one. There's so many problems, there seems to be so much work to do, and but not enough time to do it all, and we can't seem to sit still. We have to do something or it won't change. But what about taking time to rest? I think about this and like, taking time to rest. Ha! Don't be ridiculous. I'll rest when I die. <laughs> don't laugh. Failure to rest is a serious issue in our country and in our culture. Failure to rest messes with our decision making. It increases the risk for depression. Did you know that insomnia is actually a preliminary warning sign of depression? Failure to rest numbs us or makes us hypersensitive to other physical needs we have, like food, sex, water. It even takes away our ability to understand that we actually need sleep. Lack of sleep leads to more lack of sleep. Hearts, uh, rates of heart disease, heart attack, heart failure, irregular heartbeat, high blood pressure, stroke, diabetes all skyrocket when we don't get enough rest. A 2007 British study found that by reducing regular sleep by two hours a night from seven to five, seven hours to five hours regular every night, doubles the risk of death from all causes, up 100% by failing to rest. And here's something a little bit from my experience. I just had to throw this in there because you know you teach, you got to use examples from your own life. Lack of rest makes you a jerk. <laughs> it's true. Lack of rest makes you a jerk. That's from my experience for free. There you go. This week we had an overnight stay in the ER and I was already sleep deprived. Of course, it's impossible to sleep in the ER. I'm a big guy and the chairs are like this big. And my wife's in the bed and we got people coming in now. And I think she got some good laughs as I was trying to stay awake, kind of doing like the whole, like, you know, that thing. Like, Apparently I knocked stuff all over the floor at one point and she was chuckling. But it's around 3 o'clock in the morning, I really was committing murder in my heart. <laughs> I really was, because I couldn't sleep. I was a jerk. So here's the question. Here's what we want to look at tonight. When we don't allow for real, regular rest, 
both the quality and the length of our lives go down. It affects us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Here's the question. Is that what God really intended for us? Did he intend for us to struggle with rest? And if he didn't, what are we supposed to do about it? Because I know that I live there, or at least I'm there right now. And maybe some of you live there. Where do we go to find rest? So what does God have to say about rest? Quite a bit, actually, more than we can cover here tonight. God cares very deeply about our rest. He actually invites us. He, he set up something for us called Sabbath. We're going to talk about what that means. But he set something up for us that invites us into a rhythm of both physical and spiritual rest. Here's, here's, here's what's important for you to take away from If you don't remember anything else, you might remember this. Sabbath, rest, is not ultimately something we do. Rather, it is someone with whom we choose to be with. Sabbath is not something we do. Sabbath is someone we choose to be with. We find rest when we are with Jesus. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and begin to unpack this. Uh, Genesis 2, uh, 1 through 3. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So this is by design. This rhythm of rest, this, this first forgotten discipline, is Sabbath rest. Who knows what Sabbath is? It's hard to term Sabbath. Okay? Some of us have heard it. It comes from a Hebrew word. The root word is actually Shabbat. And it boils down to one idea, this Hebrew word. It, it, it means Sabbath means stop striving. Say it with me. Sabbath means stop striving. Oh, this is awesome. Sabbath means stop priming. It means cease working. Be at rest. Stop striving. So this first thing we see about the design of the Sabbath rhythm is that it's not man-made. It's not some idea we came up with. God came up with the Sabbath. God's the one who made it. He creates the world in six days, and he goes on this incredibly creative and productive six-day streak and speaks the universe into being in all its complexity at the end of the seventh day, he says, okay, done. Time to rest. Here's why this is interesting. I don't think God did this for himself because God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get tired. We see this in other places in scripture. He doesn't get tired, he doesn't get breath. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, but stands guard over his people day and night. He is inexhaustible. He establishes a pattern of one day and seven for rest, not for himself, but rather for us, his creation to follow. Why? I think it's pretty simple. I think it's because we need it. I think we're designed to need rest. And we need him. The next thing that we see about this day is that he calls the day holy, which means set apart. It's, it's the seventh day, here it is, it's set apart. And what holy means is 
When God claims something for himself, he said, this is mine. What he also does is he makes it holy. Holy means set apart by God for God. Thomas Aquinas defines holiness in, in men in this way. It's when our minds apply themselves in all their acts to God, for God. For God to declare the Sabbath day holy means that it belongs to him, and that he gets to decide what it's used for. Next, it says that God blesses the Sabbath. What does it mean for God to bless a day? What do you guys think? What does it mean for God to bless a day? I think it makes a time of blessing. There's blessing in it. When God blesses a man, the man becomes rich with blessing. When God blesses a land, the land becomes rich with blessing. When God blesses the Sabbath day, he intends for those to enter, who enter into that day and choose to honor God with that day will themselves also enter into his blessing. It's for us. It's for our good. God intends to bless his people to, good, to, to do good and to show goodness for them when they enter his rest. Here's the hard part that I struggled with initially when I read this, because I don't necessarily know what to do this, do with this. This is also a matter of life and death. How serious is God with the command of the Sabbath? Exodus 31 says this, so after the Israelites have been given the law, and they go a little bit farther forward in their relationship with God, uh, Lord gives instructions to Moses, he says, tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. You must keep the Sabbath day, for it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on that day will be cut off from the community. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day it must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. And I know what you're thinking, because I was thinking too, that Jordan is not a little bit harsh. Yeah, it is. It really is. If you're thinking from a human perspective, it's pretty draconian. But what's God's perspective here? It's pretty clear he's not making a polite suggestion about a non-critical issue. Sabbath commandment is actually number four of uh, the Ten Commandments, so it's behind, you know, love the Lord your God, like worship God alone, but it's actually ahead of don't kill anyone, don't murder. So it's not like it's, you know, down the list. It's not like one of the 630 some odd rules that were created for the Jews after the Ten Commandments. So, and, and, and the punishment is clearly an Old, covenant, an, an old Testament uh, or an Old Covenant punishment. And it's definitely not so we don't, we don't go around killing people who violate this commandment today. So why is it so critical here? I believe that God's intentions are for Sabbath to be foreshadowing Christ. This is not necessarily about this one day or doing or not doing something particular on a particular day, but it's foreshadowing what it means to enter into the complete rest that we find in Christ. Jesus was the one who was set apart to be a blessing. Through Jesus, we don't have to work to be righteous before God, not just one day a week, but ever. But if we reject Jesus, 
if we reject the Sabbath rest and come to him, there's no other provision for us. We're cut off from the blessing. And so death is, is kind of inevitable. It's kind of just the only other option. It's eternal separation from him. So why don't more of us come to Jesus? Why don't more of us come to Jesus to find rest? And, and the question for me is, why don't I, or why don't we as believers, experience more rest on a regular basis? Let's look at the Sabbath in the New Testament in Hebrews. And this passage begins by the author stating that the laws given to Israel about the Sabbath were really about Christ all along. We'll look at 3 5. It says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There, your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, Their hearts always turn away from me, and they refuse to do what I tell them. So, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believe, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. For this to make sense, and there's 4.3, it'll be up on the screen here, you can read that on your own. For this to make sense, we need to understand what happened to the Israelites. There's always been God's plan to rescue a people for himself. They would be a holy people, and they would be set apart just for him. And these people wouldn't be enslaved to anything or to anyone. Instead, they would be totally free, totally in love with God, totally devoted to God. And after he led the Israelites out of slavery and into the desert, God tested them to see if they were ready to trust him completely. He showed his faithfulness by providing for them through miracles and demonstrations of his supernatural power. And finally, when it was time for them to enter the place of rest that he prepared for them, the promised land came in modern-day Israel and Palestine. They came to the edge. They came right up to the very edge of the place that was going to be their rest. And so... They sent spies out ahead into this land to see what was waiting for them, and they discovered a problem. And this problem was that they, they couldn't just go in and occupy the land. They couldn't just walk in and take it. What they found were huge fortified cities, whole kingdoms armed to the teeth, and physical giants, and they could not see a way to win. They could see God's blessing in an incredibly fertile land of resources. They could see his rest, but they pumped the brakes hard and they refused to go in. Why? Why did they refuse to go into rest? So it turns out that our problem with rest and my problem with rest ultimately stems from, actually, I have a problem with unbelief. I don't enter rest because I don't believe God is trustworthy. I don't necessarily believe that God is good. The issue here clearly stated in Hebrews is that it's disobedience stemming from unbelief. The issue wasn't God. The issue was the Israelites' hard-heartedness. They seemingly forgot all the good miracles that God had performed and his work on their behalf up to that point. They had been out of Egypt. 
But their reasoning was that they were still back in Egypt, that they were still slaves, that they still had to perform. And so they reacted in unbelief and fear, and they refused to walk into the blessing God had for them. And they said this, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I think we live out this tension here, lest we judge the Israelites. I think we live out this tension every day, don't we? When we choose not to rest in Jesus. We would rest if we thought we could. But we want it on our own terms, by our own power. And we wonder if we should trust God or if slavery to our own ability to perform wouldn't be easier. Isn't that insane? But that's, what, that's how we think. We quickly forget all God has done for us in Christ. And we don't attribute to him in thankfulness the things that he for us. Like Roger instead. So here's the question. Are we actually slaves? The Israelites would eventually enter the promised land, and that they would struggle in their relationship with God. It was an up and down relationship. Sometimes it was good, other times it was really, really bad. And the Israelites had an awful track record. The Pharisees, the priests responsible for mediating the relationship between God and people, would eventually go on to make even more rules about how they should follow this commandment for seven and actually do it right. I totally lost my place. So these rules ended up leading the people further away from God rather than toward him, which is what the Sabbath is really about. There's nothing wrong with wanting to please God by obeying him. But obedience without love is like slavery. When you obey someone and you hate them, what is that called? What's that person called? Their slave master. When you obey them, but you hate them. Instead of letting the Sabbath discipline provide more space and time to cultivate a love for God, they just ended up obeying him without really knowing him. Eventually they had 39 categories of strict rules. Um, and let me give you just a few examples. A knot which could be untied with one hand was lawful to tie on the Sabbath, but if it required two hands to untie, it was not lawful. That's work. To kindle or extinguish a fire on the Sabbath was unlawful. That's work. It was forbidden to set a broken bone or put back a dislocated joint. I have a child who had a broken collarbone at one point, and the idea that God would say, it's not honoring to me to love your child and to care and tend for them. That just doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem to be in line with his character. One who was buried under ruins on the Sabbath might be dug for and taken out if alive, but if dead, he was to be left there until the Sabbath was over. And so they actually went in and created rules that went on to violate other commandments that God had given, like loving your neighbor, like caring for the poor and needy, all in the name of Sabbath. And so instead of resting in God's provision, the Sabbath became buried under performance requirements. 
And that's what slaves are. And slaves must perform. Slavery can never really satisfy because this is what it looks like. Just think about this in your own life and the way that this plays out. If you're a follower of Christ, maybe you remember what it was like for you for it to depend all on you. And maybe still, that's maybe where some of us still live. Your happiness depends on you, your circumstances depend on you, or if your circumstances were such and such, you couldn't be happy until you changed them. It was never enough. You reach one goal, you achieve one level of performance, and it would satisfy you, but not for very long, because then there was always the next thing, and the next thing. And maybe some of you remember a growing sense of fear or desperation when you believe that if it all depends on you and you, you accumulate more and more and more and you hoard and you grasp and you bring things in and you're like, well, I've got to have this. In order to do this, I have to have this thing this way and no, I can't have this thing. And all of a sudden, you realize that you're spinning 100 plates and if you let up for one second, it's all going to go away. You'll lose it all. And so you can't. You can't rest. Slaves also have to carry burdens. Our hope today is not about entering a specific promised land, but our hope is in Christ and his finished work being enough to rescue us from the life of hopelessness and futility. And though we say we trust God, we often struggle to live that way. We carry those burdens that actually belong to Christ. We carry the burdens of relationship that say, God, I have to be the one to make this better. I have to do such and such instead of trusting him and praying and being childlike and allowing him to demonstrate his power. You're like, no, I have to go fix it. I have to go and do this. I have to be there. We must trust that God is the true provider more than we trust ourselves. We're not to place faith in our, in our intellect, in our ability to create and perform work in our own hands. If we get that wrong, here's the struggle, the burdens. This is the, 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 the cruel kind of twisted irony here. If we get that wrong, our lives will invariably become burdensome and heavy because even the things that were meant as blessings, good job, family, maybe a marriage, career, specific goal or aspiration that God has for you, that thing that you really, really want. If we don't look at God as the true provider, then even things that are meant as blessings will end up becoming curses to us. Even the command to enter into rest can feel like a new burden. Finally, last thing that slaves have, they must sacrifice rest. Slaves must sacrifice rest. If you're enslaved to your performance, you will sacrifice rest. What better way to confront our own idolatry of ourself than to be faced with something greater than ourself? God is clear. His invitation to us is to trust Him wholly, completely, so He can rescue us and show us His goodness. So when it says that God said in my anger, they will never enter my rest, let's be clear here. God didn't tell them they couldn't enter. They chose not to. That was their decision. And God knew that they were never going to change their minds. So let me just stop right now and say this to you. If any of this is resonating for you, if any of you feel like, man, I might be living 
this way, in some area of my life, know that God desperately wants to rescue you from the system of performance, and he wants to give you his peace, and he wants to give you rest. He wants to provide everything you need most. He wants you to come to him. Because how are strongholds really torn down? Really. How are enemies defeated? Really. And how are giants taken down? Really. It's by God alone, through Christ alone. God is calling us to rest in him. So what is this rest for us today? If it's not this, what is he talking about in Hebrews? He goes on, Hebrews 4, 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Okay, remember what I just said back in the beginning. Sabbath rest is not a what. It is a who. I asked Scott Kell for permission to share this story with you. He and I had a conversation last night. Those of you know uh, Scott, he's a very intelligent, hard worker, very disciplined, very capable man. Many of you might not know this, but while he was in high school and college, he was a pretty good football player. In high school at Arlington, Scott played on a team that would become known possibly as the best in school history, going undefeated for four years straight, sometimes blowing out teams 70 and 80 to nothing. They were perfect, and they were absolutely dominant. Growing up, Scott's experience of Christianity was one of intellectual discipline and strong arguments for moral living rules. But the pastors who were preaching morality on Sunday seemed to have little interest in personally knowing or relating to God. Often it sounded like there was a serious question of whether or not God was real to begin with. Eventually it became clear that the whole morality setup was just total hypocrisy. To Scott, those preachers, their God, and their rules were a total joke. He described what that moment of realization felt like. He said it felt initially like freedom. Freedom from rules, freedom from restraint, freedom because there was no God. For Scott, the primary, primary form of rebellion then just became alcohol. Was the one thing that he said, no, you can't have that. He went out and he did it. So he began to drink more and more, but he also began to work harder than ever. In addition to his advanced studies in college and, and team practices, he would work out two to three hours a day lifting weights and riding his bike. And if the weather was going to be particularly harsh outside, it was really windy, rainy, super hot, instead of going on a bike ride, he'd go on a run. He found his identity in his ability to perform and overcome adversity just through sheer will. But it wasn't really helping him rest. He began to need alcohol to function socially. He became increasingly aware that he was losing a step both on the field and in the classroom. And he had to work harder and harder and harder just to keep up. And even that began to not work anymore. He couldn't think or play as well as he had but he also couldn't stop striving because if he did, those things would go away. So Scott 
this is a great story, you got me hooked on this story, and so I, I had to ask myself, okay, what changed? That's not who you are today, that's not who I know. What happened? He said this, he told me this, now I realize that I was full of bitterness. I really hated my college coach. I hated him when I went to sleep, and I hated him when I woke up. One time he promised me I would play an important game, and I asked a lot of people to come and watch me. My coach put me in, but not until there was only two minutes left on the clock, and we were down by 40. What a waste. I was so angry. Everything that I had worked for, for nothing. My coach became the focal point for my failure. I had so much anger and resentment, I would later go out on a kickoff play and deliver a vicious crushing hit on an opposing player because I felt like it. He didn't see me coming, and I caught him under the chin with my helmet. And afterwards, I stood over his body, bloating while he lay on the ground, and I watched his eyes roll back into his head, and watched his body being carted off to stretch in the ambulance. He would not wake up, he would not regain consciousness until he was in a hospital bed. I should have been ejected from the game. Wasn't. But like my coach, this kid had become the target of all of my bitterness. So there's a truly epic part of the story now that I'm going to have to skip. Uh, but I would encourage you to go talk to Scott. He's a great storyteller. And it's a truly wonderful story. But Scott understood that. And after that point, there was some gradual time that passed, but he understood that there was a problem. He was in big trouble. He began searching for answers, and to his surprise, found himself looking again at Jesus like it was for the first time. So he prayed and he gave his life to Christ. He surrendered it completely. He says this, I went to sleep that night, and when I woke up, I felt 100 pounds lighter, physically lighter. The bitterness and anger toward my coach was gone. My need for alcohol was gone. I was not burdened under those sins. I was actually experiencing total freedom from bitterness. Matthew eleven twenty five says this, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Not a what, but a who. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus can be our Sabbath rest because he is Lord of the Sabbath. He was there at the beginning. He created the world along with the Spirit and the Father. He gets to decide the true meaning of the Sabbath because it's his day. When the Pharisees, when the Pharisees criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, Jesus reminded them that even they, sinful as they were, were not hesitating to pull a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. He more than anyone could break their silly Sabbath rules. Saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He came to seek and to save his people, his sheep who would hear his voice and respond to him. 
All right. So how do we rest in Jesus? What's that look like? What are we going to do? If you haven't figured it out tonight, this is really all about Jesus. Yes, the answer is Jesus. My dad likes to joke about that when we were growing up. He said, we didn't know the answer to the question. What's the answer to this? And of course, my little brother and I would go, that's Jesus. Hey, the answer is Jesus here. We must go to Jesus. He's our everything. If you're here tonight and you've not yet said yes to Jesus, you have an opportunity. His invitation is to you. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will with me. You get to know him. You get to sit across the kitchen table from him. You get to talk with him. You get to be with him. He gets to love you. He did all the work for you, and the only thing you need to do is receive it. If that's you, can I just encourage you um, to find someone here, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone you came with, maybe someone you know who already loves you, so come and find me. Come and, and let them know where you're at so that they can pray with you. And I'll be up here on the service, I'll be around, and I will be happy to help you through talking to God about, about Jesus. If you already know Jesus, let's talk about the discipline of the Sabbath. We need the rhythm of the Sabbath, not because it's life or death in the physical sense, but we need the rhythm of the Sabbath because we need to be reminded over and over. We need time and space to gaze into the face of Jesus and understand that his work on our behalf is done. It's done. We need help to step out of that mindset of performance and lean into Christ so that our work is not like that of a slave who hates a master but rather a son or a daughter securing the love of their father, for that's what we truly are in Christ, sons and daughters of God who are able to rest in his total provision for us in every circumstance, even when we don't understand. We've been blessed by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So let's talk about practical steps. What does this look like? First, we do need to set time and space aside. We need to set it apart. And it doesn't really matter how long it is. If you've already got an hour, you've got a day, you've got an afternoon, doesn't matter. Start somewhere where you can get alone and you can stare into the face of Jesus you can spend time with resting in Him. And I would also encourage you, this time and space, it can be alone. It can be with people who know God, and it can be with people who don't. All of those things. There's freedom. There's freedom for you to set this time and space aside. So, next thing is create time and space once a week and set it apart. Say no to these things. Work. Your work, specifically. If you have a job, if you have uh, studies, if you have any number of things that you have to labor at, those things need to be set down during this time, whatever that time is. Busyness. 
This needs to not be passive time. It, it doesn't, you don't want to just fill it with stuff. You want to be deliberate. And if you find it filling, filling up with other stuff, then it's probably not actually set apart. Say no to distractions. This time is for God. This time is for God. Get rid of all those things that you know aren't going to lead you down, that aren't going to help you focus on Him. This last part, I think, is true for our age. You probably need to say no to most forms of technology. Put away your smartphone. Put away your computer. Put away those things because it's just so very easy to get distracted by those things. Um, wonders of the internet. It's all at your fingertips like that. That needs to go away. Make time and space for him. The best kind of illustration I can give on this is like, what would happen if I went out on a date and I was like this with my wife the entire time? Um, we probably wouldn't remain married for very, very long, um, but that's the principle here. Focus on it. Create time and space once we can set apart. Say yes to these things. Being with and delighting in Jesus. Being in and delighting in God's creation. That's what God did on the seventh day. He said, here it all is. It's time to rest. And then he declared it very good. He created it for us. Go outside. Take a walk. Go on a hike. Go canoeing. Do any of those things to go out and be in creation. Doesn't matter who you're doing it with, but go out and enjoy the things that God has done for you. And then last, say yes to being with and worshiping with God's people. Like we're doing tonight. Deb's getting ready here to, to finish our, our last song, but can we just Imagine for a moment, what would it mean to find your rest in Jesus? What might happen in your life if you regularly took time and space to rest, to reflect on how much you are loved by God? What would change? How would you change? Would you be less anxious? Would you be more relaxed? Imagine what this would look like in our families if we stopped put away distractions and focused on one another, loving one another in the name of Christ. How would we be changed? Would we find more love? Would we find more space and time? So just dream with me for a moment now. What, what would happen if we actually understood in our lives everything that Jesus had accomplished for us? What would we all be freed up to do? What would we have the courage to say? Where would we have the strength to go? What if we learned how to stop living like slaves and start living like sons and daughters of God? And here's where I think this is all going. I think this is the heart of the Sabbath. The real blessing of Sabbath is getting to be with God. It's a faint glimpse of what's coming when all people who call on the name of Jesus long and hope for in their hearts. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there were no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new.